Let's start with a photo here today. This photo is, uh, if a mom can recognize where this photo is from, or my sister, um, it's the Caribbean Sea uh, by San Juan. It's supposed to be by San Juan, at least that's what the internet told me. Uh, I'm Puerto Rico. I remember when I was about four years old, we were on the mission field. I wasn't. My folks were on the mission field. I was there because they were missionaries, so I was there. And uh, the Caribbean Sea was in our backyard. In fact, it flooded us out a couple of times. But I remember that, that sea, how huge and vast it was. I remember driving along the coast one time, and it was a really rough storm and kind of violent weather out there on the uh, sea. And I, and I just remember it being etched in my mind, you know, how scary that was. That water looked so scary. And I think at four years old, it really can, can get you. And then several years later, many years later, I, we're back here, and we live in Ohio, and we were traveling from Ohio to Michigan to Wisconsin, I think I'm in my teens, and we take the ferry, the old ferry, across Lake Michigan to Wisconsin. And I remember going up there in the middle of the night, you know, our boats, our, our cars on there, and we're, I come up on the middle of the night, and I'm standing looking over the side of this ferry, and it's just a scary thing. You know, when you see a body of water like that, I've always had this imagery throughout my life. I, maybe it's because growing up in Puerto Rico there, I, I can just see myself being plunked in the middle of that big body of water, and it's just, you feel helpless and hopeless. And so... You know, the reality is anytime I go to Lake Michigan, even today, and look at the water, you get that sense of, wow, what if I was way out there in the middle of nowhere? It would be scary. And the reality is, is that water is a very dangerous thing, whether it's a pool or a lake or an ocean. And the question really is, is when did you learn to swim? I mean, because that's what you have to do to counter those dangerous waters. You got to learn how to swim. And when did you learn and how did you learn to swim uh, when did you learn to jump into the deep end of the pool? That's really the question. And, and maybe an even better question is this one because it's like, um, it really would be this question, did you even, do you even know how to swim? Because I guess for me, maybe that's one of the reasons water is so scary to me. I feel so vulnerable. I never really mastered swimming. I can swim maybe a few yards, but I can't really swim any distance. You know, I just kind of flounder around and start sinking. So maybe that's why I'm a little more scared of the water. But when did you learn or do you even know how to swim? Truth is, some people teach themselves to swim. Some people take swimming lessons. And then what's the third way you learn to swim? It's that, you know, the old sink or swim, you know? Some parents teach their kids to swim that way. They take the little baby or two-year-old and throw them in the water. <laughs> and they just learn to swim. <laughs> it's like either swim or you die. Uh, and so uh, that's kind of a reality there. This morning, we're going to talk this morning here in our series on prayer. It's our last message in this series. But we started the series out, and in Luke 11, Jesus was confronted by one of his disciples, and they asked him, Lord, teach us to pray like John taught his disciples. And what a, what a question there, Lord, teach us to pray. And, and I thought about that because if you, if you travel, fast forward about a year and a half from, from that moment when they asked him to teach us how to pray, about a year and a half later, Jesus is going to give the disciples another lesson on prayer maybe a more powerful lesson on prayer. And he's not going to just teach them how to pray. He's going to teach them how to pray in the deep end. This is prayer for, you know, this is when you really grow. This is how you really pray, when you learn to pray in the deep end. Now, what do I mean by praying in the deep end? Let me get, take you to Psalm 69. Here's a couple of verses in Psalm 69 that kind of give it some imagery of what I 
kind of envision when I think of praying in the deep end. Save me, writes David. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. And that down in verse 13 through 15, same chapter, David writes, But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. And here's, da- here's David just learning how to pray in the deep end. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan shares this relevant commentary on Psalm 69. He says, Perhaps in no psalm in the whole Psalter, or of all the Bible, is the sense of sorrow profounder or more intense than in this. The soul of the singer pours itself out in unrestrained abandonment, abandonment to the overwhelming and terrible grief which consumes it. And so David here, he wrote this psalm and David is learning how to pray in the deep end. He's learning what it looks like to pray in the deep end. He is just basically overwhelmed. He's drowning in his grief, learning how to pray in the deep end. Here's today's big idea. It's real simple. There are times in life it is necessary that we know how to pray in the deep end. So that's the sermon title, Learning How to Pray in the Deep End. Because sometimes in life, it is just necessary to know how to pray in the deep end. Think about it this way. Because it really comes in two approaches. Sometimes we start our prayer in the deep end. Sometimes we, it's that sink or swim thing. We're just thrown into the deep and it's like, you better learn to pray. And maybe that's where Daniel was at. Other times in our prayers, God takes us from the shallow end and walks us slowly into the deep end. I'm going to teach you how to pray in the deep end. I'm going to walk you out here. I'm going to, I'm going to get you to the point where you're less concerned with your desires and more concerned with my, where you move from your wants to my will. And yes, the deep end is scary. God takes us out on the deep end. It's scary. Now, it's worth it, and we'll see that, but it is indeed Scary. Today, there are times in life it is necessary that we know how to pray in the deep end. We're going to be today looking at Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, and, and this is, he's going to show us what the deep end looks like and why it is so important to pray there. Now, our text is in, in Mark 14. We are mere, really mere hours away from Christ being arrested, being betrayed by Judas and being arrested and hauled off and the whole crucifixion thing begins to unfold. And it's in this context that Jesus goes to the garden and prays what is the Bible's most intense prayer. So let, let me read it for you here. Handful of verses in Mark chapter 14. And here's what transpires. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? 
Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So one thing we see in there is that Peter, James, and John aren't signing up for the all-night prayer meeting, are they, Dan? (laughs) No, they're not. So, hey, here's the reality, though. We're going to look at four observations of why we need to learn to pray in the deep end. These are really powerful as we walk through them. And some of this is a little familiar as it kind of just another kind of angle on things we have seen already in this series. But here's the first one, praying in the deep end, four observations to praying in the deep end. The first one is this, praying in the deep end faces our fears, faces our fears. And note what it says here, and Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, remain here and watch. And so here Jesus is going out into the deep end as it were to pray. And he's not waiting until he is in the deep end to pray. He's not waiting until they arrest him, until they're beating him, until he's on the cross to start praying. No, in advance, he's gonna go out and face his fears. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Death is not here yet. The cross is not here yet, but he is pondering it he is weighing it out he is as we said last week with daniel he is processing his emotions and so here's the impending reality and he's he's looking at it he is deliberately facing his fear now a couple things this can encourage us with is that fear is not sin fear is not sin it's not necessarily sin i think we make that leap all the time that if i struggle with fear oh that's a sin because i fear I'm sinning. That's not necessarily true. Fear is not the problem. It is what we do with our fear. That's the reality. In fact, Paul speaks to this fear issue in 2 Timothy 1. We should maybe know this verse. Quote it a lot. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So Paul here is not saying that, that, that fear is sin. He's saying that fear doesn't come from God. And so I don't have to yield to it or give it control in my life. But fear is certainly something that we can face. Fear is a lot like temptation. It's real, it's a force, and fear needs to be faced and dealt with, just like temptation does. We ignore temptation, it can overtake us. So here's the reality. Um, God's spirit is not a spirit of fear, but it is the spirit that can overcome and can conquer our fear. So whatever fear you have in your life, God's Spirit can help you conquer that. So Jesus is going out into the deep end, acknowledging his fear, facing his fear, to ultimately overcome and conquer his fear. When, when Jesus, here's the other good news, when Jesus faced his fear, he was facing our fear. He was facing your fear and my fear. The Bible is emphatic that Jesus faced every human emotion any of us could ever face. He knows what we go through. He knows our experiences, every sin, every struggle, every fear. He stared it down. He knows exactly what it's like. And that can be encouraging. What fears do you wrestle with? What fears are gripping your world and your life? 
God knows. Christ knows what they're like. He can help you deal with those fears. He can help you put them in perspective. I think there are some that have a a tough time here. They have a tough time imagining, well, how could Jesus struggle with fear? Isn't he God? Isn't he above fear? He is, but he's also 100% human. He is fully human, and the Bible says he experienced all of our experiences, all of our sin, all of our grief, all of our fear, so he could relate to it. So at the cross, Jesus encounters the fear of loneliness and rejection and betrayal and temptation and sin and the dark and even death. Think about all these foreign experiences to Jesus, things that that they would be foreign to him. Sin is foreign to him and he will bear ours. He is the light of the world and will descend into total darkness. He who is the essence of love will take on this world's hate. The one who is the great healer will become broken by us and for us. He who is life will become death. Now I get there's a fine line here we navigate talking about Jesus and fear. And I think it's the difference between the the fact of him Um, experiencing it or facing it and then yielding to that fear. I think that's maybe the contrast. Matthew chapter 10, listen to this verse. Jesus said, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So you don't have to fear Satan. We don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear those physical things but fear the one who has authority over our souls which is Jesus Christ. So how do we we kind of kind of put this all together to to make sense. And I was thinking about this last night, and here's what I think it really comes down to. The difference is this. The difference is understanding fear as a verb and a noun. I think Jesus experienced fear as a noun. He exposed that unpleasant emotional state of what fear is, but he didn't surrender to fear as a verb. Fear didn't control him. He faced his fear and conquered it. And he will help you face your fears and conquer it as well. And so when he goes into the deep end, that's what he's doing. He's facing his fears in advance. And I think the reality of his death is one of the greatest pictures because what does he do when it comes to this fear of death? He prays about it. He faced his fear to conquer it. And this is most vividly seen when you consider what it says about death. And Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, remain here and watch. And so as he's, as he's looking and, and experiencing the fear of death that we would all experience, and yet he's not surrendering to it, he's not being conquered by it. And I think that is really incredible. Now look at these two verses here, because here is our second observation. First observation, praying in the deep end faces our fears. Second observation is right here in those verses, and here it is. Praying in the deep end builds our resolve. It builds our resolve. Notice it said there that Jesus began to be in sorrow and distress. He began to be. There's this point where the sorrow and distress begins to build in his life. And yet at the same time, that sorrow and distress is going to what? It's going to grow. It's going to grow greater and greater and greater as the cross becomes closer. That's the reality. And so praying in the deep end builds our resolve. Jesus began to be sorrowful and his sorrow will only grow deeper. Now, what we see in Jesus' prayer here is that the longer Jesus prays out in the deep, the more real his emotions become, the more intense his emotions become. Now, the thing is, Jesus is not one to be driven by his self-centered fleshly emotions. 
So his emotions grow stronger as his fear becomes more real. So does his resolve to not only face that fear, but to conquer that fear. As we watch Jesus pray, we see the evidence of his growing resolve. Jesus prays in three intervals. Now, if you follow this, Jesus prays, right? He goes out and he prays for an hour. Comes back and says, Peter, couldn't you wait one hour? And Peter is sleeping. And he goes back and prays a second time. And he comes back and he finds them once again sleeping. And he goes back a third time and prays and comes back and finds them once again sleeping. He prays three times. You know, he hung on the cross for three hours in darkness. Three hours he bore our sin and our weight and our grief. And he prayed three intervals. Maybe they're all one hour. Maybe there's one hour of prayer for each hour on the cross. I don't know. But he prays three intervals, and the first interval is about an hour long. And then he breaks up the prayer meeting. In the midst of this, Luke weighs in. And I, we don't know when. We don't know when this happened, so there's three separate times he prays. We'll say he prayed for three separate hours. Uh, we don't know when this one takes place, but I would guess this happened in the last hour. I'm going to, it seems to make the most sense. And Luke says this, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and, he, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And so basically, his intensity grows to the point that he is sweating blood, sweating drops of blood. That's how intense his prayer has gotten. His agony is so great, his, his intensity and his prayer become so great, he is now sweating drops of blood. And the term for this is hematidrosis. It's the rare condition of sweating blood. It can actually happen, physically happen. We've talked about that before. And so here he is with this great anxiety, this great intensity and agony in his prayers, and it's bringing about him praying until he sweats drops of blood. What I want us to see here is how Jesus began to be distressed and in sorrow, and now that distress that sorrow is growing jesus felt the sorrow of death before he was actually on the cross and he's actually sweating drops of blood before he actually pours out his blood on the cross what we see here is the agony jesus feels is then matched by the intensity of his prayers and the intensity in his prayers are symbolic of the resolve that he is building in fact jesus emotional as his emotional distress grows so does his resolve i think the one proves the other actually i think that his emotional distress proves that his resolve is growing here's what i mean the more jesus says i'm going to the cross the more Jesus says, I am determined to go to the cross, the more his resolve grows greater and greater and greater. What happens? What he's going to suffer on the cross becomes more and more real, and the sorrow and the agony becomes greater. They just, they just kind of go together. The more his resolve grows, well, at the same time then, the greater his sorrow grows. And it just, it's, just, it's just evidence of his growing resolve. That's why he felt more and more agony and more and more intensity. We actually see this even before this prayer time, though. I think you see this in his life. There are only two times in the Bible that we find Jesus crying that I know of. Maybe I've missed something, but I think there's only two times Jesus is found crying. One of those times is about a month before crucifixion week, Passion Week. And if you remember the story, Jesus has a good friend named Lazarus who dies. 
And Jesus goes to Lazarus' home and Mary and Martha are there and they're good friends. And Mary and Martha, are there, they're heartbroken and they're crying and all the people are crying and, and Lazarus' good friend has died and he's in the grave and so Jesus is going to go and the whole point of his death was Jesus was going to go and raise him from the dead. Kind of a precursor to his own resurrection about a month later. And so as he's there and he goes to the tomb and everybody around him is crying, it says that Jesus wept. Now, why did Jesus cry? It could be all the grief around him, all the pain around him caused him to cry. But it had to be more than that because he's going to raise him in mere moments and they're going to be rejoicing. So Jesus is here here in his mind thinking they're all crying, but they don't know what's coming. And when I resurrect him, we're all going to be celebrating. So his weeping had to be more. And I think it was, I think it was just the, the stark reality of death in general. And all the people that are confronted with death and that, that are not going to know eternity with the Father because they're going to reject Him and just that reality there. And then I think on another level, the fact that He was going to die for all those people. He knows that the cross is close to Him and He's going to be going to the cross to die for all of us because we're all dead and He's going to die to rescue us. And so all of this is going on and it says Jesus wept. The second example then is what we consider today Palm Sunday. And it's the day when Jesus enters Jerusalem before he is crucified the following Friday. And as he enters Jerusalem, the people are all shouting and praising him, Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Lord. And then Luke 19.41, as he's descending into the city. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. And again, he sees the brokenness of the city and the brokenness of the people. And it drives him. He's just moved to the point of prayer, seeing the brokenness and emptiness of this world. He sees the sin and death that will drive him to the cross. And he weeps. He sees the people that will nail him to the cross and he weeps. And and the point is, the two accounts of Jesus crying are very close to the cross. As the cross, as his whole reason for coming to earth gets closer and the suffering of the cross is closer, the reality of death is closer, Jesus weeps. I just think that is so powerful. And as he prays in the garden, it's not the tears that he cries, it's the blood that he sweats. That's how intense this prayer has now become for Jesus. The agony is that great. And I think this is why we need to daily have time to meet with God, to build our own resolve every day that I'm going to stay true to God, that I'm going to live for the glory of God, that I'm going to take the hope of Christ to this broken world. And every day we need to find time to do just that. In 1956, environmentalist Sigard Olson built a small cabin on the banks of a lake in northern Minnesota. The naming of lake homes is customary in the land of 10,000 lakes. Most names are rather predictable, but Olson was a little more intentional. His objective in building the cabin was to hear all that was worth listening for. So he named it Listening Point. Susanna Wesley raised 17 children in a very small home, so solitude was hard to come by. Her whispering spot was a rocking chair in the middle of the room. When she threw a blanket over herself, it turned into her, it turned into her tent of meeting. Perhaps that's what inspired her son, John, to kneel next to his bed. 
Thomas Edison had a thinking chair. Alexander Graham Bell had a dreaming place overlooking the Grand River. Henry David Thoreau skipped stones on Walden Pond. Then there was Ludwig van Van Beethoven. He sat at his desk until early afternoon and then took a stroll to reinvigorate his mind. He carried a pencil and a few sheets of music paper in his pocket to record chance musical thoughts. Your whispering spot will be as unique as you are, but you need to find a time, and you need to find a place. And we need to every day just get alone with God. And sometimes He's actually going to take us out into the deep. He will do that, but it will be worth it. Here's our third observation. The closer, oh, the closer Jesus gets to the cross, the more we see his tears. Here is um, our third observation, and it's found in verse 38. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is what Jesus says to the disciples. You need to pray. You need to, you need to get with God on the deep end here. There is something really huge coming. You need to be praying. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is is weak, and here is our third observation: uh, praying in the deep end strengthens our spirit. We saw this exactly last week with Daniel, but we see it even more vividly here today with Christ. In fact, in Luke chapter twenty-two, it says this: "And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him, strengthening his spirit." We need our spirits to be strong, and so what Jesus is doing here is is strengthening his. Spirit. Paul tells us we can do all things through Christ who what? Strengthens us. That means that through his strength we can carry out our mission. We can fulfill our purposes in this world. We can carry our own mission out for God when we rest in the Spirit and when we trust in his strength. The reality is the Holy Spirit is willing if we will simply yield to him in our life. That is really what it comes down to. Now, I want to show you an amazing example of Jesus' empowered spirit because it can sound so generic, but I'm going to show you what his empowered spirit looks like. A couple of examples here. One is in the Gospel of John. Um, This is an amazing story here. John chapter 18, verse 3. So here's what happens. Immediately after Jesus is done praying, Judas comes on the scene. Immediately after, it says in one of the one of the uh, gospel writers says immediately Judas arrives and here's what transpires. So Judas having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So there's Roman soldiers and the chief priests and Pharisees they come to take uh, Jesus away. They come to arrest him. Now you have to understand here that there is probably about about 200 to 500 soldiers. Maybe you've seen the news recently. There's been a couple of instances where the FBI came in to arrest somebody and they came in with like about a dozen cars that came screaming in and they arrest somebody that would have probably walked themselves down to the, to the, the police station, but they made a big scene, you know, it was kind of overkill, everybody said. Well, the reality is this was probably overkill, 200 to 500 soldiers to take in one man, but that's what transpires here. So here's what happens. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken 
of those you gave to me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having his sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servants and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? Now this is absolutely beautiful. And here's what he says. Notice what he says here. He, he says, who do you seek? They say, who they seek? He says, I am he. What you have to understand is that in the actual manuscripts, I believe in the Greek, you don't find the word he. The word he is just inserted to help us understand the text to make it flow a little better. What Jesus really basically says, well, I think I have it here. Here's, here's the, same, uh, the same verse. This is the sentence within technique. Just read the bold part there. Then Jesus said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. Hey, great. That's, that's great. Who do you seek? We seek Jesus. He says, I am. Which is, of course, so beautiful. That is, of course, uh, the self-existent God. That's the name of God in the Old Testament, the self-existent God. Now, if that's not enough, you want to see the power? Did you, did you realize what happened here, the power that happens in this passage? The power of His Spirit? Because when He says, I am, what happens to the 200, 300, 400, 500 soldiers? Did you know what happened? They all fell over. <laughs> they just all fall down. So he gives them time to collect themselves and they get up and they get their stuff all together. He says, now, who did you say you're seeking? He says, I am. I am the one you're looking for. I am the one who has come to save the world. I am the Son of God. How amazing is that? And so we just see here, we just see Christ in all of his power and we see that transpires. It's an amazing thing. Jesus' inner strength is witnessed in the garden before the Roman soldiers and expressed with the declaration, I am. And we just, it's just an amazing, just an amazing thing. I thought, I kind of want that power when I preach. Then it just blows us all, even myself, just knocks us all down. The power of God's word. Seriously. And it's ironic as well, just to note, that Luke is the one who actually... Um, well, never mind. I, I, I'm not going to go there. It's just, just a kind of a, it's an, an interesting insight, but it, we'll move on. Um, Jesus demonstrates one who is strong in spirit. He shows us a man who conquered his fears, endured the cross, and completed his mission through forgiveness and humility and patience and deference and passion and love. All of those things are evident in Jesus. Isaiah chapter 53, and we don't have time to read this, but let me just run through. This is what Isaiah 53 tells us about the power of Christ's Spirit. Think about this. Jesus' inner strength is witnessed throughout the crucifixion when he prayed for those, what, three hours in the garden. This is the impact it had on him when he went to the cross. Just think about this. Uh, the rejection he faced. He conquered the rejection he faced, and then there was the mocking he endured. There was the weight that he bore. There was the restraint he showed. There's the humility he demonstrated, the pain that he felt, the forgiveness he offered, the peace he displayed. All of that. All of that took place. And you can read through that and find all of that really back in Isaiah 53. I put it on the back of your notes if you want to look it up later. All the things that when he hung on that cross, that's what he was able to do because he was strong in spirit. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. When you pray in the deep end, you strengthen your spirit. Now, 
there is one tempting question we might want to ask here, and it would simply be this. This would be the tempting, tempting question. Could Jesus have faced the cross without praying in the deep end? We might want to get cute and say, well, okay, what if he hadn't prayed? Could he have withstood the cross? And here is how that question is obliterated. It's obliterated with this reality. Here it is, simply this. Jesus would have never, under any circumstance, faced the cross without first praying in the deep end. He would have never gone to the cross without praying like that because he just knows he needs to pray in the deep end. And he's telling us there's times in life we need to know how to pray in the deep end if we're going to live the life he has called us to live and know the joy he has called us to know. So, Jesus said we need to learn to pray in the deep end. Why? Praying in the deep end faces our fears Praying in the deep end builds our resolve and praying in the deep end strengthens our spirit. And finally, it leads us to this last point. Praying in the deep end surrenders our will. This was the ultimate goal of Jesus' prayer. He was facing his fear and processing his emotions and building his resolve and strengthening his spirit all so that he could surrender his will. The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. You got to overpower your flesh. You just do. Mark 14, 36, and he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus here is building his resolve to surrender his will. He's taking his will and his desires, and he is just building the will within himself to surrender to the ultimate will of the Father. Because the cross is such a demanding mission, it's such a demanding task. It takes incredible surrender. Jesus references a cup here. Remove this cup from me. You could look at that cup and think that cup is everything that he feared. All of his fears are in that cup and he chooses to drink the cup and face his fears and conquer those fears through the Holy Spirit that indwells him. It's funny, when we take communion, we celebrate communion with what? We break the bread and drink the cup. We drink a cup. Now, the cup that Jesus drank, here's some... some some commentary from Tim Challies about the cup Jesus references here. Time and again, the Bible speaks of a cup of God's wrath, which will be poured out against sinners. It is a cup of horror, desolation, shame, and destruction. It is a cup filled to the brim with the perfect wrath of a perfectly just God. And Jesus drank that so we don't have to, so that we can at communion time drink the cup of His grace, the cup of His mercy. How beautiful is that? I shared this before. There, there, initially here in this first hour of prayer, Jesus actually walks himself through three different levels, showing his move towards surrender. He prays, my father, if it be possible. And then he prays, uh, if it, let this cup pass from me, if it be possible. Then he prays again, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. And then finally he prays, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And you just see the, the tra- trajectory of his prayer. If it is possible, Lord, all things are possible. But Lord, not what I want, but what you want. Your will be done. What, what, what an incredible, what an incredible, what an incredible prayer. Now there's one question you might be left with at this point today as you look at everything we've talked about and you might say, okay, the message title is learning how to pray in the deep end. And you might say to me, well, 
you never taught us how to pray in the deep end. You didn't give us like three steps to praying in the deep end. I thought about that. And, and, and let me answer it in this way. Let me give you answer, three simple responses here. Number one, I can't teach you to pray in the deep end. Only Christ can teach you to pray in the deep end. And help you understand what that even means. Go back to Daniel, or back to David, Psalm 69, when he feels like he's drowning in his grief. Only Christ can teach you, really, to pray in the deep end. I really can't. Secondly, praying in the deep end comes down to one thing. It comes down to surrender. Christ is in the garden. He's praying. He's facing his fears in advance. He's surrendering to the Father and to the mission God has for him. And praying in the deep end comes down to just that simple reality of surrendering. Sometimes it's when we're in our prayer time and God starts to walk us from the shallow end of the pool into the deep end of the pool. Say, let's pray about some real intense things. I'm going to take you out here where it's scary. I'm going to take you out here where you're going to feel like you're drowning, and if you don't have me, you won't make it. God does that. He'll do that. Sometimes God lets life just throw us in the deep end, and we're like, hey, and we need to start praying in the deep end. So here's what I can do. I can't give you three steps and say, this is how you pray in the deep end. I mean, maybe there's some advice and some things we could come up with, but reality, only Christ can really teach us praying in the deep end. Here's what I can do. Like Paul, I can remind you of your potential in Christ, and I can tell you that, yes, even you can pray in the deep end. You can go in your spiritual walk with with Christ to a place you never thought possible. And Paul tells us, told the Ephesians, for this reason, because of all of the spiritual blessings you have, I'm praying for you that you you would know your potential. And sometimes that's found in the deep end. And we have a Holy Spirit that prays for us and we learn praise with us. When we don't have the words to say the Holy Spirit, when we're out in the deep end and we don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit has the words to pray for us. How amazing is that? There are times in life it is necessary that we know how to pray in the deep end. Let me give you uh, here. Praying in the deep end is an act of your will. It is a surrender. Let me give you three closing observations here that I think will be very helpful. Three closing observations, and it would be this, number one, Ray. Jesus teaches that the greatest commitment we can make is to take up our cross and surrender our will. Here's what he says in the, in, in the Gospel of Matthew. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And let me just tell you, the good news is you don't have to take up the cross of Christ. Only he could bear that cross. That was his cross. We often say that he bore our cross. Truth is, he bore his cross. No one else could bear the cross that Christ bore. We take up our cross, that's simply symbolic of surrendering your life to him. Surrendering your life to him, following him into the deep end at times. But look what it says. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. There is a life we all are all looking for. There's a life of fulfillment and a life of joy and a life of abundance. And everybody is looking for that. You're looking for that. The people you work with are looking for that. Your friends, your relatives, your neighbors, they're all looking for that life. Hopefully you've maybe found that life. I think we've, we, we all have found it to some degree, hopefully, in this room. I know I have found it to some degree. I want to find more of it. I pray for more of it. But how do you find that life? You, you surrender. You, you, you take up your cross. You, you surrender and you follow Jesus into the deep end of the pool. 
and he'll do amazing things in your life. Second thing he teaches us that I thought was really fascinating is that Jesus' greatest fear was actually experienced in his purpose. His mission to come to earth was to come on a rescue mission to save us all from our sin. That was his purpose. And where was his greatest fear experienced? In his purpose. I think there's something for you and I there that our greatest purpose is really to live for the glory of God and to bring the hope of Christ to a broken and hurting world. And I'm just going to tell you that what Jesus is showing us today is that for him to fulfill his purpose, he is saying, I needed to go and I needed to pray in the deep end. And if you're going to live for the glory of God and if you're going to bring hope to this world, you're not going to do it if you don't know and learn how to pray in the deep end. You're simply not. And then finally, one last, one last thing here. Um, let me go back to Psalm 69. We started here. Save me, O God, writes, uh, da- uh, writes David, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Here's the thing you need to know is that David's greatest anguish david's greatest anguish think about this psalm 69 is actually a parallel to the crucifixion and maybe you knew this and maybe you didn't psalm 69 is actually considered a messianic psalm it's one of the handfuls of psalms that basically point us to christ and his crucifixion the, psalms 22 is the most common one psalm 69 is another one and remember what that that, that opening commentary quote by g campbell campbell morgan said that this is one of the most intense if not the most intense of all psalms and it's the psalm that depicts christ the night that he was crucified or the night before he was crucified when he's praying in the garden and he is basically drowning in his grief that's the reality of what is transpiring here in an amazing thing, an amazing thing. His greatest anguish, Psalm 69, is actually a parallel to the crucifixion. Yeah. Wow, how incredibly amazing is that. Let me give you this. At the, age, uh, at the age of 35, Christian psychologist and researcher Dr. Jamie Ayton was diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer that had spread to his pelvis. Ayton said, For the first six months, whenever I asked for a prognosis, All my oncologist would say was, I can't tell you that it's going to be okay, Jamie. It's too early to tell. If there's anyone you want to see or anything you want to do, now is the time. Cancer wasn't the first disaster I faced. My family and I had moved to South Mississippi six days before Hurricane Katrina. But this disaster was different. There was no opportunity to evacuate as I did before Katrina made landfall. This time the disaster was striking within. I was a walking disaster. Aiton learned that the key to both traumatic situations involved what he calls spiritual surrender. Aiton writes this, spiritual surrender helps us understand what we have control over and what we don't. In a research study I led after Katrina, we found that people who showed higher levels of spiritual surrender tended to do better. This finding didn't make sense to me at the time. It seemed like a passive faith Uh, response fast forward to my cancer disaster i vividly remember taking the trash to the curb one winter morning while praying that god would heal me the freezing air felt like tiny razor blades cutting across my hands and feet because of the nerve sensitivity caused by chemotherapy wondering if god even heard my prayers for healing i kept praying as i walked back inside my home 
Then all of a sudden I dropped to my knees and prayed the most challenging prayer of my life. Instead of continuing to pray for God's healing, I asked that God would take care of my wife and children if I didn't make it. This was the hardest prayer I had ever prayed. For the first time in my life, I truly experienced spiritual surrender. I finally understood true spiritual surrender is far from passive. It is a willful act of obedience. Father God, move us to that place. Move us to the deep end where we can pray those kinds of prayers where we can say, Lord, not my will, but your be done. And we, there's things in life we don't want to face, but we have to face them. And there's things that if we face them, there's incredible joy on the other side, just like Jesus said of the cross. There's incredible hope we can build into the lives of other people if we'll just take up our mission, take up our cross and surrender to you. Lord, help us understand today, each one of us, what does it mean for me to learn to pray in the deep end? What do you, what, where are you moving me? What does it look like in my life? And I, I just want to encourage everyone here, Lord, that there, 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 is, there is just something they can't even describe waiting for them if they'll surrender to you and head out to the deep end. In Jesus' name, amen.